And that song was striking a note that I think is going to reverberate forcefully throughout our message today. If you'll turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, this is Romans, and I think you'll see why this reference is pertinent today. While we're turning, I just read an article that the flu shot this year doesn't really work, <laughs> so that was encouraging. So in, in the, the end of Romans, we have greet one another with a holy kiss, interpreted in the flu season in the Northeast. That means greet one another with a holy fist bump, preferably a gloved fist bump. And uh, you know what I mean. It's just uh, one of those times where if you seem to have the symptoms, love one another by not assembling together with the saints. And recently I I took communion. I don't know if I was really invited to or not, but I, I took the host, and then I saw people drinking out of the same goblet, and I said, the host is enough. So kind of went right by that. So consider that. That's Romans. Greet one another with a holy... Salute, too. That's good. That's even better, standing apart. And if you do my, I'm not a military person, so my salutes are sloppy, and I, I do that on purpose just to distinguish myself from the military folks in this ministry who have a perfect salute. Now, don't forget, through December 15th, keep it coming. Keep your generosity cooking on these things, collecting toys and children's clothing, new, that is, in all sizes through December 15th. This is a way that we have a channel for the love of God being poured out in our hearts toward our community here in New Kensington. And this also is our cooperation with the New Kensington branch, with the Salvation Army, and we've had a fruitful co-laboring with them. So thank you for that. Also, remember, there will be a Sunday school volunteer Christmas luncheon on Sunday, Sunday, December 10th, for all Sunday school volunteers and their families. And all volunteers that plan on attending the luncheon, please sign up right out here at the information desk. And for that, thank you. Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 15, and Father, we ask that you'll demonstrate your intention in Christ Jesus and in the gospel of your Son, through this message, we ask it in his name. Amen. Second Peter 3.15. When I was in Florida, I had opportunity every day, and it was the longest stretch that Pam and I have ever spent in Florida because of my mom's up and down health situation especially. But I was in prayer Early on, I, I was studying many commentaries, and all of them tried to determine the purpose of Paul for the writing of Romans. Very important. And it varies from author to author, although they pretty much agree on one thing. So my prayer was, Father, what is your purpose in Paul writing the epistle to the Romans? Instantly came to my mind a passage from Ephesians that God's great intention or his great purpose in Christ Jesus was to reconcile or to recapitulate by an apocalyptic takeover all things in his son. And so to me, 
that was kind of an answer that Romans was the proclamation of that purpose of God. And in that proclamation, lots of other problems can be solved. Paul thinks and he writes universally in order to deal with a particular situation in Rome in which there were several house churches, some tenement churches, as they're called, in the so-called slums of Rome. And there were also some wealthy homes in which churches were sponsored. But there was a great division and a shattering and a fragmenting of the saints in Rome, as there is today in among Christians, which is healed through the proclamation of Romans. So my message today is the salvific, salvific patience of our Lord, especially in Romans. So if you're going to turn to Romans, it's Romans in toto, the whole book of Romans. Many of these Sunday morning messages, my intention is to ask in Latin the question, quid sit? What is it? What is Romans? And then to answer it verse by verse, inch by inch in an exegesis of Romans. Second Peter 3.15 reads this way, and think of the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him. I recall that the wisdom given to Paul was just that. It was an insight given to him, and it was about an apocalypse, a revelation of a mystery, the mystery of God's intention to summarize everything in his son. So according to the wisdom given to him has written to you, and I take that you personally, He speaks about these things, and that's a present tense, as if it's a historical, vivid present in which he's still speaking to us. So he writes to us, he's written to us, but he still speaks to us. That's why, for one of the many reasons why I called our previous introductory series, Better Call Paul. He speaks about these things in all of his epistles. He's speaking about everything that Peter wrote in 2 Peter, all the the themes that he brings up which are really culminating in one theme, the patience of our Lord, which is salvation, constitutes salvation, just like the righteousness of God is his act in Christ for salvation. The power of God, the grace of God is his power for salvation. So just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. In verse 16, I think the French translation that I looked at gets this even better. He speaks about these things, but the French, I think, says, c'est sujet, or this subject, this subject, which is the patience of our Lord being salvation, which all the other subjects brought up, including the new creation, which is found in Second Peter 3, including the battle against false teachers, including the righteousness of God, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. All of these are culminating in the one subject, which is the patience of our Lord, which has a remarkable demonstration in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The patience of God, the patience of our Lord extended throughout history from Adam to the cross. And then afterwards from the cross to the parousia, that's the patience of our Lord. 
And it's culminated and demonstrated in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, Yeshua, enduring the sins of the world. He speaks about these things, says verse 16, in all his epistles. My point today is these things culminating in the patience of the Lord as salvation or the salvific patience of the Lord especially in Romans. All his epistles, especially in Romans. Romans is a kind of a culmination. There's another thing I've been dealing with, and this is why it's a battle. Studying is a battle. It's a war zone. You read in Romans 16, 25 to 27, there's scholars that want to eliminate that, but I think it's not only a fitting culmination to Romans, but it's a fitting culmination to all of Paul's epistles. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery is what all the apostles' epistles are summed up in. The proclamation of Jesus Christ, that is the heralding of his ascendancy as king of the universe through his death, burial, and resurrection. According to the apocalypse, the revelation or apocalypse of a mystery, a secret held silent in God until the prophets began to speak of it in shadows, and until Paul the Apostle began to preach it in substance in the New Testament scriptures. So he speaks about these things, culminating in the salvific patience of the Lord in all his epistles, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. You don't believe that? Try to exegete Romans. Which the ignorant and unstable distort, to their own ruin. And this is the case in the interpretation of Romans, which has brought forth what I think is a false idea of individualistic justification by personal faith, rather than universal salvation by the personal faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is a synonym for the patience of our Lord, which is salvation. The patience of our Lord is salvation, not your faith. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which demonstrates God's faithfulness, is our salvation. God's approval of Jesus Christ is my salvation. That's what I believe, and that's why I proclaim this truth. In all of the epistles of Paul, he writes to you, not just to the audience scattered throughout the Roman Empire, of Second Peter, but he writes to you about the matters brought up in Second Peter, especially the culminating subject of the salvific patience of our Lord. That'll be the title today if we have one. The salvific patience of our Lord. Paul, in all of his epistles then, especially Romans, speaks of the patience of the Lord which is the same as his faithfulness, which is salvation, which is the same as his righteousness, which is his act in Christ for salvation. Now here's some reasoning for you. If the patience of the Lord is infinite, then the salvation of the Lord would have to be universal if the patience of the Lord is infinite. 
So the patience of the Lord, I'll make this argument, is infinite. So the salvation of the Lord is universal. That's what Romans is all about. It's not about individual justification by personal faith, a choice that we make, which is Pelagianism and an error. It is a universal salvation of all creation through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. A salvation which is especially for those who believe in the present era, who already have a taste of the life of the age to come. But it is not exclusively of those who are presently believing. It is especially of those who are presently believing. As I believe the first and second Timothy and Titus are interpretive of Paul's church epistles. And we'll get into that much more. That's another very strong road that I want to take in interpreting Romans. So if the patience of the Lord is infinite, then the salvation of the Lord would have to be universal. The patience of the Lord of Lords is infinite. And so the salvation of the Lord, which is the salvation which is of the Lord in Psalm 3.8 and Jonah 2.9, is universal. So Isaiah 40 and verse 5 reverberates into Romans when it says all flesh shall see, and that means experience, the salvation of the Lord. And that is why the call of the prophet is Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. So Paul already knows, as I've said before, Romans 4.25, when he uses the word paradidomi in the Greek. P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I. When Paul uses the word paradidomi, which means to hand over, in some cases it even means to betray, because Judas handed over or betrayed Jesus Christ, but it means to hand over. Paul already knew, Romans 4.25, that Jesus Christ was handed over for our transgressions. And that he was resurrected for our justification. Our transgressions is the transgressions of all humankind. Because he's the propitiation for our sins. But not for our sins only. But the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 1 and 2. And so he was raised for our justification. Same our. The justification or the setting right. Or the rectification of all. Rectification is a better word than justification because what God does for us is not just impute his righteousness to us. False doctrine. He makes us right. He doesn't just declare us right. He makes us righteous. He makes us right. That's so important because then if you don't understand that, how can you interpret Romans 6.1? How can we that have died to sin continue any longer therein? If God is justified or set us right, how can we then, how can the old man breathe any longer? Say, how can the old man breathe, act, function, lust, kill, desire any longer? And so, Paul already knows Romans 4.25. He knows he's going to say, he was handed over for our transgressions. When he says, or let's another piece person say, now, that means that sometimes in Romans there is another voice speaking. Romans 1, 3 to 4 is another voice speaking, but Paul agrees with it. It's the traditional gospel. 
that Christ, according to the flesh, came through David, and that according to the spirit of sanctification, declared to be with power by resurrection, the Son of God. This is already an established traditional gospel. Paul quotes from it, but then he goes on to reveal what God has given to him. The implications of that gospel, the implications of that proclamation being a universal horizon of redemption. That's what God gave to Paul. That's the wisdom God gave to Paul. And that's what we're all about in teaching Romans. Paul already knew when he said, and lets another person say that God handed over the Gentiles to their lusts and passions. Three times paradidomy, Romans 124, 126, 128. Now here's the thing. If Paul lets another person say that, which comes pretty much from the wisdom of Solomon, a non-canonical book, Paul doesn't disagree with that. There is a divine action that hardens Israel. There's a divine action that gives Gentiles over to their lusts. Paul doesn't disagree with that. And that's going to be made clear only as we exegete verse by verse. So I may make statements that I have to demonstrate through exegesis. That's my job. So... Paul knows already, Romans 4.25, that God handed over Jesus for our sins before he writes or says or lets another speaker, an interlocutor, say, and there's no question that Paul is speaking with an interlocutor. He's chosen a debate partner in Romans, and it goes all the way through Romans 11. It goes deep into Romans, and it's back and forth. Romans 7 is the speech of not Paul, but another. It is really the speech of the Adamic ontology, the Adam, the, the Adamic self, frustrated by the law as it's in tandem with sin and the flesh. So there are times when Paul gives voice to other voices and replies. And this is what we're going to have to also sort out in Romans. The point is, Paul already knows and is going to speak about the redemptive act of Christ before he speaks already, while he speaks of the divine action of handing over the Gentiles to their idolatry. Paul already knows Romans 11.32, that God shuts up all in disobedience in order to show mercy to all. Almost everyone I'm reading and I don't have to read everyone else to say this because the Greek exegesis makes it very clear that the all there is everyone without exception from Adam through to the parousia of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so God, Paul already knows because he's reading, he's writing Romans with this light on him. The light of God is on him. He's writing Romans with the light on. It's up to us now to read Romans with the light on, the light already on. And this is, to, as far as I know, unique to any commentary where we start with this light on. In that light, then we see light. We're starting in the light of God and in the light of his patience, which is salvation. And the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of the risen Christ. You had to, be, you had to see the risen Christ to be an apostle. But do you realize what's happening here? You are seeing the risen Christ, and you will have an ambassadorship that is effective as you go away from seeing the face of the risen Christ.
So then, the patience of the Lord, of lords, is infinite. And so his salvation has to be universal. Paul already knows Romans 11.32 that God will show mercy to all. When he says in Romans 9.15 where Calvin and a lot of other people stop short, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Paul says that and everybody gets all shook about it. That There is a double predestination that he shows mercy to some and some not to others. But when God says I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, Paul already knows that he's going to show mercy to all. God wills to show mercy to all. So what does he do? In, in Romans 9.22, he endures with patience. He endures with patience. The patience of the Lord. Vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. That's not just Pharaoh and his gang in Egypt. That's everybody in the human race. We are all vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. In other words, destruction would be just the right thing to do to us because of what we have in sin and what we are in sin and what we are under condemnation. We are all vessels of wrath. Paul even said to the saints in Laodicea and Ephesus and other places where that letter circulated, which we call Ephesians. Once you were also children of wrath by nature. But it's not by nature that we're interested in here. It's by God's grace. So in Romans 9.22, he says, God waited and endured with patience, vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Stop there and build your Calvinistic doctrines if you want. I'm not interested. In fact, God waited through all the sinfulness of people from Adam to Moses. We'll find this out exegetically. Then he allowed the law to slip in when Moses came. He allowed the law to be added to the mix so that the transgressions would increase astronomically. That's God's action. And then the Lord himself endured the cross. And then the Lord himself endured the cross. The patience of the Lord is expressed most shockingly and astonishingly in the endurance of the cross by Jesus the Lord. So, God waited patiently through all the sinfulness of people from Adam to Moses. Then he allowed the law to slip in so that the transgression increased qualitatively. And then the Lord himself endured the cross and took upon himself the sins of the world, enduring the consequences, which is the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, which is death, a kind of absolute death that we know nothing about, a death that can only be described as God-forsakenness. So, he endured the consequences for the wages of sin, which is death. For this reason, the patience of the Lord is salvation. As Paul writes in all his epistles, and I think perhaps most notably in Romans. 
The patience of God is displayed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. The faithfulness of God or the righteousness of God expressed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The patience of God is displayed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to and through the unspeakable ordeal of the cross. I'm convinced that the cross, and this is why I was kind of stunned when Dan sang that song this morning about the cross, because that's the whole thought that I had for today. Because when we think of the cross, we think of the Christ crucified, because that's the definitive revelation of God. The self-revelation of God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, interestingly, the cross is never used in Romans. That phrase, never, not once. Sometimes something is accentuated most strongly by its absence. Something is conspicuous by its absence. I recently saw a picture of the president, and then there was no people sitting on either side in a certain meeting because they, they bowed out of the meeting. And I said, they're conspicuous by their absence. And so the cross, that word, the cross, is conspicuous in Romans by its Absence. It's not absent, that word, the cross, in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 18, the word of the cross. Because really, Paul kind of rides in like a runway to take off. In First and Second Corinthians, he's on a runway to take off for Romans. And he speaks about the word of the cross in 117, 118. He speaks about it in his battle with the false teachers endorsed by religious heavyweights in Jerusalem. In Galatians, he deals with it. 5.11, 6.12, 6.14. He deals with it in his primary message, which is his pristine account of the gospel to a pagan church called, the letter is called Ephesians. He uses the cross in 2.16. Philippians 2.8, he became obedient to the extent of death, even death by the cross, the death of the cross, he says. And in Philippians 3.18, he speaks of false teachers as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, not eternal damnation, but just the destruction of their message, and with it, the destruction of their ministry. Philippians 3.18. Colossians 1.20, by the blood of his cross, he reconciles all things. By the peace made by the blood of his cross, he reconciles all all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, etc. And also Colossians 2.14. And of course, there's the famous reference that I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, but in Hebrews 12.2, it speaks of looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith or faithfulness, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. There's the patience of the Lord, which is salvation. And so I'm convinced that the cross is often used in the scripture, especially in Paul's epistles, rather than the term crucifixion, which he also uses. But the cross is often used rather than the term crucifixion, because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ 
was a crucifixion like no other. Crucifixion was common in those days. You'd see ways or roads or avenues lined with crucified people in the days of Rome. A slave uprising, and the slaves are crucified. Citizens of Rome had the privilege of being beheaded. And Paul said, greet Achilla and Priscilla there in Rome who laid their necks on the, at the base of the execution axe to save my life. They were Roman citizens. They were Jews, but Roman citizens. They had the privilege of beheading. Non-citizens had the horrendous punishment of crucifixion. Crucifixion was common. It was very common and brutal in the brutal bestial reign of the Caesars when Augustus claimed a gospel, and he called it a gospel, euangelion, the gospel of Augustus, the son of God, God himself, the savior who would bring universal peace to all the world. That's what Augustus said. And guess who tried to recover that Augustan gospel? Nero, in the time in which Paul wrote Romans. And so Paul's gospel was pretty subversive. He didn't try to be a political subversive, but when you talk about Jesus, a crucified man, as God, as Savior, as Lord, and as the bringer of universal salvation and peace instead of Augustus and Nero, you're in a kind of a controversial situation. Today, there's similar reasons why this gospel is controversial, but it's mostly because of the distortions of the gospel within Christendom and because of the misunderstandings of gospel within certain what we call world religions. But most of all, because of human self-righteousness. So I'm convinced that the cross as a term is often used in the scripture, especially in Paul's epistles, rather than the term crucifixion, not because Paul's trying to avoid the unspeakable horror connected with crucifixion, but because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was a crucifixion like no other crucifixion, with implications like no other person's crucifixion, because it accomplished something unspeakably glorious and far-reaching, more far-reaching than can be imagined. Beverly Gaventa, in her book called When in Romans, very excellent book, and brief and readable, unlike most of the books I'm reading, made the point of points about Romans. She says, in Romans, there is a universal horizon. She's right, and she's discovered it. And she makes that statement boldly like a lot of other people, including authors I read, don't dare to make it. They don't quite dare to say it's universal. Well, let's be daring. So Paul uses the term, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, not to soften the atrociousness of this brutal way of dying, but rather to sharpen the focus on the reality that the cross which Jesus endured was not ultimately the means by which a man was executed and died a slave's death and a rebel's death by the idolatrous Romans at the insistence of the apostate Judeans. It wasn't just that. It was the means by which not a man, but the man, 
Christ Jesus became sin. Became sin, it says. That we might be made, not imputed with, but made the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 on the runway into Romans. What's the runway into Romans? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. One of those strongholds was a nomistic gospel, a legalistic gospel, which has different clothes on now, but it's just as deadly. And it has to do with individual justification by a meritorious act of personal faith and a choice on the part of man rather than on the obedience of the man, Christ Jesus, the only person who counts in salvation and as a self-revelation of God. So the cross means that the cross that Jesus endured was not the means by which a man, a man, was executed by Rome, but it was ultimately the means by which the man, Christ Jesus, became sin, became propitiation or the expiation or both of the sins of the whole world and therefore gave himself as a ransom for all. For all includes the vessels of wrath that were fitted for destruction because that is all. We were all the children of wrath by nature. We were ungodly. We were sinners in the most expressive sense of the word. Responsible sinners, but also under a power called sin that we couldn't extract ourselves from. One thing about God, he justifies. That's what God does. God justifies. But what's shocking about that is that God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. Because in due time, at the right time, the time of the cross, Christ died for the ungodly. The righteous one, says 1 Peter 3.18, for the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous if not everybody apart from Christ? Who is thankfully now our federal head. Paul never uses the phrase the cross in all of Romans. But it's still at the radical center of that epistle, even as it's undetected by many, the radical center of the so-called Christmas message. And what is at the radical center of that epistle? The patience of the Lord which is salvation, the endurance of the Lord, the endurance by the Lord of sin and its unspeakable wages, death. So let's look at Romans 3.25, the most notoriously difficult to translate. This isn't my final translation. I reserve the right as a teacher to, as we go in our moving viewpoint, to fix up some of the things of the past by ongoing exegesis. That's what it is to have a moving viewpoint. But look at Romans 3.25, and I'll show you what I mean. Though the cross is not mentioned as a phrase, it's at the heart and center of Romans. Romans 3.25, God 
publicly displayed. Jesus Christ as the means and the place. Hilasterion means mercy seat here, but it means the means and the place of expiation, propitiation. Expiation and propitiation both are in that word, Hilasterion. Expiation means to make sin not to be any longer. In Romans in Hebrews 9:26 it says Christ in the end of the ages has appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. Put away sin. That's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. I got some good stuff for you. Powerful. And propitiation has to do with the satisfaction that I'm going to explain a little bit on, on, on the road here. But God publicly displayed Jesus Christ as the means and the place of propitiation or expiation through his faithfulness, not through your faith. Your faith wasn't even around to be exercised. What are we talking about here? It says through his faithfulness. This propitiation is a demonstration of God's faithfulness expressed in Jesus Christ's obedience, which led him to be publicly displayed, nailed to a tree, cursed. That's the curse. That's the scandal of the cross. And I'll explain how that scandal works today. It works in the universality of the salvation of the cross. That's a scandal today. Have you noticed it? But also what is a scandal today is the exclusivity of salvation in no other name but the name Jesus. There's an exclusivity about the cross. There's an inclusivity about the cross. And both of them are the way to slap somebody across the face both ways. Inclusive. Exclusive. You can't help it. It's like you're wearing a gray shirt and blue pants in the Civil War and running in the cross fire. But that's what it means to preach the gospel today. God publicly displayed Jesus Christ as the means and the place of expiation, propitiation through his faithfulness in respect to his bloody sacrificial death to demonstrate his God's righteousness. Because listen to this word in his patience. Paul's heart of the matter here. Patience here. In Peter, it's macrothumia. See, when you read it in the Greek, there's a whole bunch of other challenges. Here, it's anoke. But it's the same meaning. Anoke. Macrothumia means to be long-suffering or to endure long under people pressure or under the, in this case... The vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. God endures that. And anoke is a word that means the same thing. Patience. Righteousness because in his patience. Who? The patience of the Lord. What did he do? He passed over without imputing and without remitting them. He doesn't impute them, but he doesn't remit them either. He passes over the sins done before. That's the sins from Adam to Moses all the way to Christ, all the way through Abraham, all the personages Paul uses in there. 
He passed over them. Which means he did not thump people for them. For the demonstration of his righteousness. So he passed over the sins done before. Done before what? Committed before or omitted before the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here we have, just like we have in the book of Revelation, an enthroned lamb right at the heart of the heart of the heart of the revelation of God. An enthroned lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of some lucky elect people. Do you know the scripture? Remember, that's not a quote. John one twenty nine takes away the sin of the world. That's not only the sin of all humankind, but it's the sin that's caused all creation to be limited and enslaved so that it can't be what God intended it to be in creation. But it's free now. It'll be free. So, he passed over the sins done before for the demonstration of his righteousness, and that's his act of deliverance in Christ. In the present time of crisis, kairos doesn't just mean time. It means a critical time, a time of crisis. The present time is a time of crisis. It's a time of a universal transition of ages. The evil age, which is called the night, is far spent. The day is at hand. It's a time of crisis. We stand right in this time of crisis. We proclaim this gospel in this time of crisis. So that he says, now, in this time of crisis, to show that he is righteous by his act of deliverance, that's my translation, and that he rectifies... The one who is of, and we could even translate that as the one who is the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The one who is the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is every one. He goes on to demonstrate this, and we won't get there today, but Paul goes on in chapter 4. This is a lead into chapter 4. Much misunderstood, chapter 4, to show from the scriptures that Abraham was an example, not of one who is rectified by his own faith, but he's an example of the one in Romans 3, 26, who is rectified on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what he's trying to demonstrate in Romans 4, not justification of the individual by personal faith, but of a beneficiary who was counted righteous without the works of the law before he was circumcised, which is a demonstration that he pictures and is a template for the one who is the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is unheard of. Well, it's heard of. People understood it when they wrote. People understood it in the time when Second Peter was written. They understood it in the time when First, Second Timothy, and Titus was written. They understood it. They don't understand it now. With all of our technological advances and all of our intellectual pride and all of our religious attainments, you don't get it. So. 
Again, the patience of the Lord is displayed in the patience of Jesus Christ to and through his endurance of the cross. This patience of the Lord, which is the patience of the Father expressed in the Son and expressed by the Son in the cross. This patience of the Lord, guess what it is? It's a theological synonym for the faithfulness of God expressed in Christ, which is salvation. Karl Barth got the synonym right here. It's a theological synonym for the faithfulness of God displayed in Jesus Christ's obedience to the death of the cross. In Philippians 2.8. And I could suggest even now that Philippians 2.5-11, which is a traditional rendition of the gospel with some additions by Paul from the scriptures. Romans is kind of a fanning out into 16 chapters. The few verses called Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I can also show you that Jeremiah 9, 23, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, etc., but let him boast, who's going to boast, boast in the Lord. That 9, 23, and 24 of Jeremiah, that Romans is virtually an exegesis or a fanning out of that prophetic explanation, explication. And these things will be all demonstrated in Romans. There's a whole lot here, and I love it. And so by which all human beings are rectified, this faithfulness, not just declared righteous, but made righteousness. That, of course, is only completed in a little act of God, which we like to call resurrection, bodily resurrection. The obedience of Jesus Christ also known as the faithfulness of Jesus, we have synonyms here. His obedience is his faithfulness. His faithfulness is his obedience. The obedience of Jesus Christ, or his faithfulness, is that to which we are called. We are called to the obedience, which is faithfulness. We are called to the obedience, which is a share in, a participation in, by the Holy Spirit, of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. And so there are new trends coming out because they understand faith to be faithfulness. There's new gospel preachers saying, we're not saved by faith. We're saved by allegiance. So now we're saved by our allegiance, which means we're all screwed is what that means. We are saved by allegiance. How's that for you? by the allegiance of Jesus Christ to the Father. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge its allegiance to Jesus as Yahweh the Lord. So we're saved by allegiance to God. His allegiance to God. The allegiance of the man Christ Jesus to God the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion. You want to talk about grace? want to call your church grace church of the so-and-so or grace and truth church or truth and grace or grace. We are the grace people of God. You want to talk about grace? If you don't have that gospel, you don't have the right to call your church grace so-and-so or your gospel grace so-and-so. 
I'm speaking to brothers. I'm speaking to brothers and sisters. I'm speaking to my family in Christ. I'm not condemning. I'm not castigating. I'm not rebuking. I'm just saying, let's all, and I don't like to use the word, but let's all get on board with Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of God. I'm not asking people to get on board with me. That's scary. I'm saying, let's get on board with the gospel of God, which is all about his son. So, this obedience is his faithfulness. This faithfulness is his obedience. This faithful obedience is his patience. This patience is salvation. This patience is infinite. You say, how can you say it's infinite? Because it endured the sins of the whole world and their consequences. It has to be infinite to endure the sins of the whole world and their consequences. And so if the patience of the Lord is infinite, then the horizon of his patience has to be pretty far reaching. I'll say it that way. Okay. Universal. So then we get to this, when we do a pincer movement from the beginning and the end of Romans and the German pincer movement or the, the pincer movement of Hannibal, when he destroyed the Romans at Cannae, was a pincer movement. You start at the end, you start at the beginning, you come to the center. When you come to the center and you get to passages like Romans 9 that are misunderstood as double predestination passages, you don't see them that anymore. You see them in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ and in the light of the purpose of God, which summarizes and puts everybody together in the same prison called disobedience in order to unlock the gates to the prison and let everybody go by mercy. This is the gospel. This is what we're supposed to proclaim with joy, joy to the elect. Now the song joy to the world is right on target. Even Linus got that right. And he also put his blanket down when he said it, he put off the old man. And then said, lights, please. Lights, please. Let me preach the gospel in the light. So, Linus is also a biblical name. Read it. Look it up in your concordance. There's a Linus in there. Paul speaks pretty highly of him. So, the day they cancel that from TV is the day that the United States will fall under the judgment of vessels of wrath in history. There is, a, there is a wrath that God expresses in history, not in eternity, but in history. And that's what nations fall under. Our nation is ready, ripe for that. But guess what's happening at the same time? The announcement of this gospel. So what's going to stop Rocket Man and everybody else that's aiming at us? What's going to stop them? War? Retaliation? Diplomacy, action by man, or the action of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You tell me. It's up to you. You answer that. I'm not going to answer that for you. The patience of our Lord. Now listen carefully. I'm going to close soon. He endured with much patience, Paulo Macrothemia, vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, not in order to destroy them, but in order to save them by his mercy. The patience of our Lord is salvation, is the great cry 
of Romans. It's the cry of the herald, the proclaimer of the gospel, the apostolos, the imperial slave, not of Caesar, but of Jesus Christ. It's the outcry. It's a cry heard in all of Paul's epistles, and I think most notably in Romans. The massive interpretive statement in 2 Peter 3.15 is surely accurate. At the heart of Romans the epistle is the cross, which demonstrates this divine salvific patience. Just because Paul doesn't say the words the cross in Romans doesn't mean that he's not determined to communicate nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that means crucified and raised and exalted in Romans. The case is very much to the contrary, as we see from Romans 3.25 to 26. Here we have the enthroned lamb in propitiation, expiation for sin, for the sin of the world at the heart of Romans as it's at the heart of John's gospel, as it's at the heart of all epistles of Paul, as it is at the heart of the apocalypse of John, as it is at the heart of the Old Testament scriptures, as it is at the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel that we proclaim. Now, not only the patience of our Lord, and this is where I want to go with this, and I I thought I was going to do it today, but I really don't. Think we have time. Nor do you have the patience. Ours is an infinite. Here we have satisfaction in this cross. Listen carefully. We have satisfaction here. Not only for all the sins of the whole world, but we have here in the cross of Jesus Christ the satisfaction. For which all victims of human and institutional injustice, abuse, oppression, persecution, murder, rape, violence of all kinds have cried out for and do cry out for today. There we have that satisfaction. When every eye sees him, they will behold the victim, the victim, and they will behold the victor over that oppression. Every person who suffers injustice, especially the most egregious and heinous kinds of injustice, everyone who's experienced it and still lives, desires, and even if they have not lived, Jesus said, those who cry to me, for vengeance will be avenged very shortly. And how are they avenged? In the cross. Let me show you this. The satisfaction would never be truly had. Everyone who's experienced this injustice of these kinds desires, if not vengeance, at least satisfaction. That satisfaction would never truly be had in the eternal destruction of their oppressors, however. It would never be had. That vengeance wouldn't be fulfilled. As much as Augustine would like to think so, as much as Thomas Aquinas and others would like to think so, it's not satisfied by people in heaven looking at people burning forever in hell. That doesn't satisfy. 
the true need for satisfaction of justice. That satisfaction would never be truly had in the eternal destruction of their oppressors or their murderers, but it is had in Jesus Christ, in the Christ event, which came to pass in the spring of A.D. 30, some 22 years before the writing of Romans. That which occurred on that day is not yet disclosed in all of its fullness. It's not yet disclosed in all of its fullness. To those who rightly, properly, passionately cry out for justice. Some cries out, some outcries for justice today are insincere, disingenuous, and selfish. Some are true and some are real. When all things will have been made new by the universal redemption and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ, there will no longer be martyrs crying out to be avenged, no longer victims of rape and murder crying out for justice. Satisfaction will have been received at the last by all when they see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining without obstacle in the face of Jesus Christ. And when the victims will lose the disappointed requirement for justice, they will not lack a thing. They won't go through life lacking that sense of satiation and satisfaction for wrongs done. It'll be gone. They will lose the disappointed requirement for justice. And when the perpetrators of those injustices at the same time will have been permanently rehabilitated by a transformation effected by the resurrection from the dead. That's an exclusively divine action performed by the exclusive power of God. God rectifies all things. And this means that he gives justice to those who lack it in this life and in this world at the present time. But he also gives righteousness to those who lack it in this world and in this life, both classes of which are in bondage. God rectifies the ungodly, says Romans 4, 5. And that is a category of humanity that includes victims and perpetrators. Jews and Gentiles, men and women. It includes the most lawless anarchist and the so-called law-abiding. All are ungodly. And thanks be to God, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. Christ is he who died. God is he who justifies. God justifies the ungodly, and that includes the vessels of wrath, which without the cross can only be fitted and destined to destruction. That's all for today, and I have so much more. And this is discipline, believe me. 
my discipline to stop here. But we'll continue this message in the same power that we left it here in days to come. Thank you, Father, for the public display of Jesus Christ as the means and the place of satisfaction. The more we see, the more we comprehend, the more we understand, the more we appropriate for ourselves the gospel of God, which became Paul's gospel and which now can become our gospel. The more we appropriate this, the more we lose self-destructive grudges, the more we don't try to ascend to a throne to judge others, for Christ has ascended to a throne after receiving the judgment for others. The more we put off from ourselves the old Adamic ontology and put on the new man, which is Jesus Christ himself, and make no more provision for the flesh in its self-destructive desires. May we have the grace to do this, Father, in the light of the coming dawn, which dawned with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the light of the fading night, which came to an end in the cross of Christ, we stand at this precipice, Father, and you've privileged us to live in such a time as this. So with all of the things we're enduring and all the things we're bearing and all the things that we are suffering, we still give you thanks that you've privileged us to be in this place at this time Believing in this Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.